Hey everybody, welcome to Is It Legal? I'm your host, Dave Plow. Today, we're talking with the president of Anderson University, John Pistol. You may recognize John's name due to his time as deputy director of the FBI or his four years as the administrator of the TSA. But when John was fresh out of law school, he started his career as a lawyer. Yeah, I was in a general practice in a firm here in Anderson. There are five of attorneys, all of whom were Anderson University IU grads and, and affiliated with the Church of God, which the Anderson University is associated right. with. So was there a particular area you practiced in, or were you just kind of getting some, your feet wet? Yeah, so it was basically the general practice. I did some tax and estate planning, which I enjoyed. Uh, but after a year, I thought, well, I would li- maybe like to do something else rather than do this for the next 40 years. And so two friends of mine, uh, two friends, uh, were lawyers who had gone on to join the FBI, uh, I talked to them, and they said, well, if you're interested in change, it's, the FBI is a great job, and uh, you, there's something new and different every day, right. and that sounded interesting, and the possibility of moving and living elsewhere. Uh, my wife is in the D.C. area, so she was open to that, and so we said, well, let's apply and see what happens. Okay. So what was that transition like, going from being like a lawyer and then joining the feds? Yeah, so, well, it it had plenty of time to assess it because it took about a year from the time I submitted my application before I was actually hired. It's a lot of time to think about it, get ready physically uh, because it's it's a rigorous training academy and uh, for about 16 weeks. And then... um, we, uh, after that training academy at Quantico, Virginia, about an hour south of D.C., got transferred to, uh, assigned as first office in Minneapolis. And so we moved to Minneapolis. My wife enrolled in uh, the University of Minnesota and got her master's there while while I started work as a new FBI agent. And what do you do when you start out there? What do, they, what do they give you? Yeah, so it depends on what group, or they call it a squad of agents. Uh, and squads are anywhere from 8 to 15 agents and perhaps uh, some intel intelligence analysts. I was put uh, on what was called an organized crime drug squad, uh, which for Minneapolis, there's not really much organized crime compared to, say, New York City or something like that. So it was uh, biker gangs like the Hell's Angels. It was uh, human trafficking um, in terms of sex, sexual exploitation of, of children who are teenagers, typically who are being trafficked um, to other cities, Chicago, New York. So those type of things. Then you moved on to like Chicago or to New York. Yeah, I went on to New York and, and worked traditional organized crime, the the Italian mafia, what's called La Costa Nostra, and was there's five uh, major uh, LC and the Costa Nostra families in New York City, and I was assigned uh, to one of those, the Colombo family, and worked that for several years, and then uh, was given responsibilities um, for the Genovese family, uh, so working both of those. When you're working one of those, what what does that entail? What do you do? Yeah, so you try to figure out, um, it's a little bit different from most type of uh, uh, criminal investigative activity where uh, you might know that a crime has been committed and you're trying to solve the crime. With most of the at least traditional organized crime back, this is back in the 1980s, um, you may not know what the crime is or you may know that there's something going on, but but you have a pretty good sense of who are the members, uh, the made members of the family and then the associates. And so you figure they're involved in some type of racketeering or loan sharking or gambling or maybe murder and different things. So you try to figure that out with the, basically a, uh, a map, if you will, the hierarchy of the family, the boss and the underboss and then the consigliere and then capos, the 
captains, the boss, and things like that. So yeah, that's it was great work. So it was kind of like on the Sopranos where they show the big like they show yeah. the big bulletin board and they got the posters. Up. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I've watched a lot of you know most almost everything I know about the FBI or even police comes from either cop movies or the X Files. Yeah. So I was just kind of wondering, like, <laughs> yeah, so not the X Files, not the X Files, obviously, but uh, for example, the, the first Godfather movie or um, Donnie Brasco is a who's a undercover agent, Joe Pistone. Um, uh, his undercover name is Donnie Brasco. That's accurate. Goodfellas, that's accurate. Um, I actually worked with one of the guys from there uh, after he cooperated, Henry Hill, to um, to come speak at organized crime training sessions in services. Wow. So that was interesting. Yeah. When did your job change with FBI? When I was transferred, I actually was promoted from New York to our FBI headquarters um, after about five years in New York uh, to the organized crime section at headquarters, which is part of the of the oversight for all uh, uh, programs around the 56 offices of the FBI that are 56 offices in the country. And so um, that, and that was, yeah, um, after like say about five years in New York, so 1990. And then you became the counterterrorism? Yeah, so after 9-11, I was uh, um, asked to be part of the counterterrorism division. What did you do with them? Yeah, so I was the what they call the uh, deputy assistant director for operations, so investigations. Um, so every every FBI counterterrorism investigation, um, I was responsible for overseeing and making sure that we were doing what we should be doing. And then one of my bosses retired, so I got promoted to be the head of the counterterrorism division. And then another boss retired, and so I got to be the head of counterterrorism and counterintelligence, the espionage spy stuff. And then another boss retired, <laughs> and uh, then in, I guess that was October of 2004, um, I was named the deputy director of the FBI, which is the number two position. And you say that until you left the FBI, right? You're right, until... Okay, so and you said 2004, so President Bush was in office at that time? Mm -hmm. Did you, when we switched over and President Obama took over, did that, how'd that affect your job at all? Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, other than the, the morning briefings under President Bush in the, his first term, um, the, the director uh, would go to the White House every day for a, a morning counterterrorism intelligence briefing. When the director was out, um, I would do that. Uh, in President Bush's second term, that became a once-a-week um, briefing. And then under President Obama, it was once a week or even more um, uh, infrequent, just depending on what was going on. Right. So, What's it like working that closely with the president? Well, it's fascinating, obviously. I mean, the first time I went to the Oval Office uh, with my boss at the time, Robert Mueller, he was the director of the FBI, he was going to be out the following week, and so he wanted to introduce me to President Bush and the vice president and the chief of staff and the others. And so um, so I went and sat in the Oval during during this briefing and, of course, didn't say anything. And, and so the briefing, after 15, 20 minutes, the briefing is over, and we all get up to walk out and... And as I'm walking out, President Bush says, Pistol. I said, yes, Mr. President. He said, don't say so much next time. <laughs> of course, I hadn't said a thing. Right. Uh, he, he, that just was his way of welcoming me. And then uh, for that next week, I briefed every day. And, and so I was representing the FBI and doing that. And that was a great honor. There are a lot of people that get that experience. So people right. are very interested in, you know, sure. what's the date, like, what's it like when you go in there and you meet right. the president. Right. Before we get done talking about your FBI stuff, what about the day-to-day -day of working in the FBI do you think would surprise people? 
Well, I'm not sure based on people's perceptions <laughs> because it, uh, it, it, so much has been informed by TV shows or movies and things. Uh, but I think most people would be pleasantly surprised um, with the the hard work, professionalism, integrity that that virtually all uh, FBI employees demonstrate every day. I think there's an expectation of that. Right. Um, so. To some, that may or may not be a surprise, but I think perhaps the uh, the surprise on the other side is that it's an organization of about thirty five thousand employees. That's a microcosm of society in many respects. So there's humans with human issues and failings, and some some great folks. Um, uh, but it's ever generally people who are are uh, dedicated to protecting this great country of ours, and and uh, that's what they've taken an oath to do, and and so that's what they do every day. All right, one last question. Is there any case or anything you worked on that stands out? Well, I had a, I was very fortunate to, to work on a number of different things. Uh, one of the most memorable was uh, arresting the boss of the Genovese family, um, and uh, he was kind of the shadow boss um, because he was... He was uh, not wanting to be seen as the boss because he knew that you know as you kind of get a bullseye on your on your back once you become the boss. And so uh, his name was Vincent Giganti. He was named, known as Chin um, because he'd been a boxer as a teenager. But um, yeah, he was an interesting guy. And if if anybody Googled that, they would see uh, Vincent or Chin Giganti. Uh, they may see a. Uh, me and the arrest photo of him back from 25 years ago. So yeah, that was. How'd you get him? Well, so it was actually yeah, it was uh, it actually wasn't my investigation. I just got the credit for the arrest, <laughs> uh, which sometimes how things work. Um, but yeah, it was for extortion and labor racketeering, and uh, yeah, he'd walk around in a purple bathrobe every day in, in the Greenwich Village area, which of New York, where he worked, where he lived. And feigned insanity, he'd check into a mental hospital uh, every year for two weeks, every year. For 20 years he did that before we arrested him, uh, trying to establish an insanity defense. And, uh, yeah, he was an interesting character. And I was glad I wasn't called to testify as to his competency because I probably spent nine or ten hours with him the day they arrested him. And there, I only observed uh, literally a few brief seconds of where I would say he was lucid. But again, I wasn't a trained psychological professional, so I was glad I wasn't called to testify about that. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about John's time with the TSA and find out about Anderson's association with the Indianapolis Colts. But first, our sponsors at the IU McKinney School of Law invite you to learn more about the school's biennial counterterrorism simulation, which places law students in the roles of government decision makers, managing a crisis in real time and responding within the boundaries of the law. The interdisciplinary event is sponsored by the Global Crisis Leadership Forum. More information at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Coming back, being the number two guy in the FBI seems like an interesting job, one someone could do for a very long time. So I asked John why he decided to step down. Yeah, so I was asked to um, consider uh, putting my name in to be nominated by the president. Um, and I had been approached about um, perhaps leading um, 
well, two other federal agencies previously, and it just didn't uh, didn't seem like the time was right or just uh, whatever, uh, the circumstances. And so when I was asked, um, um, and that was under President Bush, uh, so when I was asked about this job, after thinking to myself, well, well there's a thankless job, who would want to do that? <laughs> um, thought about it, prayed about it, talked to my wife about it, and, um, and decided to say yes to the possibility recognizing, or I learned then, that there had been a prior nominee, uh, President Obama had nominated somebody, and they hadn't made it through the Senate confirmation, and so they'd nominated a second person, and that person hadn't made it through the Senate hearing confirmation process, so I was actually the third nominee. <laughs> so I thought, well, they're getting desperate here, but uh, I, I was intrigued by the, the possibility that it being a God thing, that maybe God has opened a door, that I should be open to that dis- that possibility, and then of of leading an agency. I'd been the number two guy for almost six years. Um, so I'd learned a lot from, from my boss, uh, the director of the FBI, and thought, well, maybe this is uh, be a good challenge, an opportunity, and, and it, it sure was. So, Can you tell me about going through the confirmation hearings? Yeah. It sounds like you know, two people didn't do as well as you did. Well, so they had some issues come up uh, in the by the Senate staff. So the, the White House does a thorough background on any uh, nominee. They call it vetting. Uh, right. That person is vetted before the president actually nominates them. And apparently they had not disclosed some relatively minor things, at least in the one instance. The other was more serious, that the Senate staff found out about and then when asked uh, about... Uh, Certain key senators said, "Well, I can't support you." So they eventually withdrew their their names for consideration. So my vetting with the White House staff, because they'd been embarrassed uh, by these two failures, basically, right. uh, why didn't they catch those things? Um, they're very thorough, and and because I'd been FBI agent for over 26 years, had a top secret security clearance, never arrested, and didn't have any social media. <laughs> um, it um, and the, one of the key things is uh, they they took my pulse and it was beating nice and strong. Right. So uh, that was good. Uh, and that was a joke, by the way. Um, so yeah, so I thought, okay. And then, so the, the actually confirmation process, because I'd worked with a number of the senators and their staffs when I was at the FBI, they knew me and had some some confidence in me. People, frankly, were just so anxious to get somebody in that uh, my hearings, I had two committees I had to appear in front of. They both went pretty, pretty well. And then um, within a few weeks, it was a unanimous vote uh, by the Senate. So... Uh, so then I started. How would you describe your time with the TSA? Well, it's transformational uh, for for me and TSA. Uh, when I got there, I realized that TSA was still using what I'd call one-size-fits-all approach to aviation security, and 97% of TSA's $7.2 billion budget is focused on aviation, vice that of rail or subways or trains, buses, and things like that. Um, and that was because uh, TSA is created after 9-11 with a mandate, never again. Don't let terrorists ever do anything bad on a plane again. And because of limitations in intelligence sharing um, right after the days of 9-11 and limited technology, uh, there has still been a one-size-fits-all approach. So when I got there, I said, let's look at things differently. Why is it that I was allowed to travel on commercial flights for the last 27 years with a deadly weapon, a gun, um, well, that's because you're an FBI agent. 
And my point was, we're already differentiating between people we know and trust if we can verify or validate who they are. So why can't we do that more broadly? So we started with something we call risk-based security, risk-based intelligence driven. And um, yeah, then spent the next several years rolling that out. So things like TSA PreCheck are one of the most visible manifestations with over a million people signed up for that now. And and Global Entry, which is a companion program, Customs Border Protection, for a re- return to the U.S. when you're out of country. But 25, 26 different uh, initiatives we've put in place while I was there to change from one-size-fits-all to risk-based security. I noticed uh, publications like Forbes, everything they had to say about you was very positive and your time with the TSA. What, Thank you. Ever, everyone seemed to think you did a very good job. What made you decide to step down? Well, I had a, uh, received a... Um, another call uh, from um, uh, somebody associated with the school here that um, who told me that President Edwards um, was thinking about retiring, and I thought they were calling to ask me about um, some good names of rec- people I might recommend, and and um, they said, well, actually, we're thinking about you, and so. Well, that would be unusual since the four presidents have all been ordained ministers and three out of four had PhDs in higher education, and I don't have either of those. Um, So um, I almost didn't tell my wife about it that evening, but uh, decided I'd better in case somebody else reached out for her. And um, so she didn't, well, her her comment was, well, you're not interested in that, are you? And I said, oh, no, not really, because it was just out of the blue. And then... And she said, besides, you're not qualified, are you? Because she knew that her dad was a Church of God pastor for 37 years in D.C. She knew the the, the, the qualifications of the prior four. So um, long story short is she had um, a sense that several days later that that we should be open to the possibility. Okay. So I got back with this person and said, mm, okay, so what's the process? And so we went through the search committee process and interviewed and, you know, submitted an application and interviewed and all that. And then last October, uh, the full board of trustees voted uh, me as the as fifth president of Anderson University. Now, that came after I promised all of them TSA pre-check benefits for life for free oh, if they'd vote for me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that probably was not the best way to start off. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were, they've been very warm and embracing. So, yeah. Great. Uh, and you were telling me before we got started that, you know, your family's got ties here. Uh, right. What, what are those? Yeah, so my dad, uh, Dr. Hollis Pistol, was a professor at the School of Theology here for 25 years. He started in 1961. And, um, and then my sister, my oldest sister, uh, Cindy, Cindy Poikinen, uh became a professor the year later, 1987. And she served 25 years. So there's 50 years. Uh, contiguous, continuous uh, of pistol professors here at Anderson. Um, I was blessed to m- meet my future wife, uh, Kathy Harp, here as freshman, um, and um, we got married five years later. And so we're coming up on 36 years uh, this this summer. My three older siblings, her parents, uh, went here. Both my parents attended here. Uh, all four of her grandparents, uh, who were either in the ministry. Uh, as at churches or as missionaries went here. So, yeah, just a long, rich history. Uh, to borrow a phrase, you got deep roots here, basically. Deep roots yeah, is right. That's great. Um, 
What are your plans for the university? What do you want to do here? Or what do you hope to do? Yeah, so I've been here, I started March 1st, and so I've been on what I describe as a listening tour, meeting with, with students, uh, faculty, staff, uh, alumni, uh, both here and in other areas around the country, uh, pastors uh, of the Church of God, um, just to get a sense of, of their perspective on where we've been as a university, where we are today, and where they think we're going. And so uh, I wanted to really get a, a good grasp of that before announcing any major changes or anything else. Um, and so I'm still doing part of that for another month or so. Um, and then want to look at you know, just the best way to position ourselves really what will be our second century of, of service as an as a school we started we started in 1917 so in two years we'll have our centennial celebration and so my goal is to make sure that we are as best positioned for our second century of service as we were for the first we've had over 25,000 uh, graduates uh, of Anderson University who are doing things just around the world, around the country, here in Anderson, here in central Indiana. And uh, it's just, uh, it's really, as we describe, such a great cloud of witnesses, people who are are uh, really serving uh, in, in, in some great areas, including government, uh, but every other profession uh, imaginable, almost. <laughs> Being like the university in a smaller town like Anderson, uh, what's your, I guess, what's your position with the local government? Do you guys work hand in hand? Like, what do you see as being your place within the yeah. city or your job? Well, we city? have a great initiative um, with the city of Anderson, which has gone through tough economic times here in, in the last you know, 20, 30 years with uh, the loss of General Motors jobs. Um but there's a great uh, initiative called the Flagship Enterprise Center, which is actually just out on Interstate 69. People can see it. It says Anderson University and Purdue University underneath that. Um, but it's a great partnership between the city and the university uh, that that serves as a business incubator, uh, entrepreneur, Center for Entrepreneurship, uh, does microloans for new businesses. It's actually helped attract uh, hundreds of jobs to the city uh, because of funding that the city can provide uh, through tax abatements and different things. And then it provides a good opportunity for Anderson University, uh, which has a residential MBA program at the flagship center, uh, but can do internships with some of these businesses and then perhaps potential jobs. And so it's uh, it's in the it's attracting new jobs to Anderson and Madison County in central Indiana. And so that's a good thing. And so pleased to be part of that partnership. Yeah. And you guys are also, uh, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners will know this, but you guys do once a year become the most visible part of Anderson by hosting the Colts training camps. Yeah, um, that's a nice little event in the summertime. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it's a nice little thing goes on. Do you guys have you had any interaction with them yet? Is or is that something you just have coming up? Yeah, I actually had my first interaction this week uh, with one of their representatives. Uh, but clearly, we are in partnership with the city of Anderson to help sponsor that because it's a huge undertaking, right. as you can imagine. And um, so it's a it's this great opportunity for us to showcase Anderson University. University, the, the great uh, facilities we have here, both athletic and, and academic. It's a beautiful campus. Uh, for the, your listeners who haven't visited, I encourage you to stop by and just wander the campus and see. And clearly, if you have uh, children or grandchildren that are interested in school, I invite you to stop by, look me up, and uh, I'll give you a guided tour myself. So, All right. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? I've got everything I need so far. Yeah. yeah just that, again, I'd, uh, if any people are looking for uh, a quality education, 
education. We are uh, we, what we talk about is academic and Christian discovery. So small classrooms, uh, uh, just great Christian environment. It's a great place to learn, make contacts, and a great alumni network. And so just welcome people to come visit. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone, that is it. My thanks to John Pistol for inviting me to the Anderson University campus to do this interview. You can find out more about AU at their website, anderson.edu. John may be the president of AU, but he's also an alumnus of our sponsor, the Robert H. McKinney School of Law. And they would like you to know they offer a public policy mediation course, which is open to both law students and practicing attorneys or judges. It is a one-week intensive course that carries 24 hours of continuing legal education credit, as well as civil mediation training certification. The fall course takes place August 17th through the 21st. Learn more at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Listeners, thank you for continuing to download and subscribe. That's going to do it for me this week, but I'll catch you next week on Is It Legal?